everybody. Welcome to Time and Attention, the podcast dedicated to helping you become a better, more intentional human being. I'm apparently the co-host of this show, Arden Nordstrom, and I'm doing the introduction for some reason because this is episode 93, The Year of Calm. How did I do? Bravo! Yay! You're going to have to do the rest of them now. Yes. For anybody who uh. is happens to be listening to this as the first episode, I don't usually do the intros. That's all Chris's thing. Um, but we thought, or I actually thought, this would be kind of fun to do a little differently because your book came out this week. Hey. And so I ha- I suggested that I interview you about the book because I, I love this book. And I just think I want other people to love it as much as I did because... I've read all of your books, obviously, but this is the one that, I mean, I think about all the time and it's the one I'm most excited to see other people get as much out of it as I did. Um, I love all your books, but this one just kind of like really struck a chord with me and it sounds like it's really striking a chord with other people too. I mean, yeah. yeah. So. No, it, it's interesting. When, when I put out a book, you know, people message, people say, I'm really enjoying the read, but in terms of the number of people that have messaged and recommended the book to other people, I, I feel like I'm tooting my own horn here a little bit. Toot away. Your book came out okay. this week. That's I, cool. I will toot away. Uh, <laughs> I feel the number has been quite a bit higher uh, for How to Calm Your Mind compared to the other books. Maybe because it's more personal, maybe because it's uh, maybe more relevant uh, to other areas of our life beyond work. But it's just an interesting finding. So I'm excited to dig into it with you. All right. So Chris hasn't seen any of these questions. No. So first off the bat, how much do you love me on a scale of one to a million? No, no I'm wow. kidding. <laughs> I'm actually going to talk to you just about the book because so, and full disclosure, yeah, you haven't read, read any of my questions. Are there any hardballs? I don't think so. No? That's not really what I would do. No? That's not very nice. It's not a, a combative interview? Yeah. I'm just here to grill you actually. <laughs> yeah. So. I have nothing to grill you about. I know no. everything about you. Why didn't you? Why didn't you do the <laughs> dishes yesterday? Uh, yeah, I mean that seems like a pointless waste of people's time. <laughs> so, to respect everybody's time, I guess in the book you talk a little bit about how calm is this ingredient that helps us accomplish more of what we want. Yeah, I think that's kind of. I mean, when I come, when you first pitched this idea to me, it seemed a little bit counterintuitive and also very different from some of the other work you've done. So I guess, what do you mean by calm? And like, how is this related to the other stuff you've done? Yeah. So I I write in the book on how in an anxious world, the path to productivity runs straight through calm. And that is something I've come to really believe over time, uh, especially going through periods of anxiety and burnout myself. And this is the fascinating thing about calm and and productivity for that matter is it, it all depends how you define productivity. Uh, You know, I I simply define productivity as accomplishing the things that we set out to do in the first place. And when you define productivity by that measure, pretty much everything we do and everything we experience and everything we decide to do uh, affects how much we can accomplish each and every day. Uh, So this can be everything from how intentional we are to whether we eat a, a gigantic Uh, lunch at a buffet and have no energy that afternoon. And zooming out from that idea of productivity, calm is something that I've thought a little bit about over the years, but really seems to have a a direct effect on how productive we are. And I experienced this firsthand after going through a period of 
deep burnout, deep anxiety myself. I, you know, we, you know, you were so gracious through this time. And I was just totally depleted and wrecked while I was anxious at the same time. I actually had a panic attack on stage in front of about 100 people. And this is the fun part about doing all these interviews is, you know, with you, it's easy to, you know, talk about. And I, I don't know if you remember the kind of aftermath from that particular event, but I just wanted, you know, to not think about it. But mm-hmm. that, that led to kind of an irrepressible desire to get to the bottom of what anxiety is and what calm is, if, if that's even a research construct. You know, if we're anxious, our productivity suffers. Whether or not we can accomplish the things we, that we set out to do suffers. Uh, because anxiety actually shrinks our working memory capacity. Uh, this is an idea that I talked about in Hyperfocus, if, if folks have read that book, where we have this attentional space, uh, which is our immediate term memory that we use to process the world around us. So if you multiply 13 by 32 in your head and you try to, and you're visualizing how you carry the numbers over and you visualize this multiplication in your head, that's your working memory uh, doing its job. And the interesting thing behind anxiety and cognitive performance is it shrinks our working memory. And a lot of people experience this to some effect. Like, let, let's say you have to give a big speech to a thousand people in 15 minutes. You probably won't be able to focus on anything before that speech. You know, you're going to be just ruminating on the speech to come. Like when you have to introduce yourself in a circle and you don't remember anything the person right before you said. Yeah, you don't know the different people around. Exactly. (laughs) And if somebody asks you to read a research paper or listen to a podcast or read a book or something before you give that talk, good luck uh, having that cognitive capacity to be able to do so. Uh, And anxiety has this similar effect on our performance, only to a, a smaller effect, hopefully, than giving this big, important speech. But it has this effect all day long. Uh, In the book, I calculate how about eight hours of actual work takes us around 10 hours to do when we have to work with an anxious mind. And so it was this fascinating journey, you know, to kind of sum up this question, because I feel I've been talking for a little bit. But (laughs) it, it was this fascinating journey that started at a really uncomfortable place that led to a lot of just, I find, fascinating lessons involving topics like burnout, like anxiety, like chronic stress, like dopamine, like how mentally stimulated our mind is, uh, to what calm is to the extent that it's researched at all and how that relates to anxiety. And yeah, the book is the summation of what I learned from that journey. All right. So, sorry, long, <laughs> long answer. I'll, I'll keep the other ones shorter. I, mean, I don't know how many. This is the thing. I don't know the questions, so I don't know how. I mean, we've got to lots talk. of questions. Don't okay. worry about that. But I mean, it's very clear you're in interview mode, and I can. Yeah. So, I mean, no one's gonna believe you didn't read those questions because really? that was a very polished little answer you oh. gave and a very long answer. But it's because you're a hundred percent in interview mode, and I always know, even when I'm not interviewing you, even in our like daily life, I can totally tell when you're in like media mode. Why? Because M- media mode. Yeah, I like that. it's I like just that. Uh, it just you you talk a little differently, and this is like the epitome of that. So really, I yeah, it's it's kind of funny to see it in action. <laughs> wow, what, what um, is it? Is it weird for you? No, no, no. But you, I you, usually... you say I have a distinct laugh when I'm doing an interview. Oh, yeah, yeah. You definitely have your like interview 
on the record kind of laugh. Oh, and it's it's very different than your carefree when more, you're just with me laugh. Is it more guarded or something? I don't think so. It's just yeah. different, like oh. notably different. And so every time, like every now and then I'll hear it in the background and kind of gives me like a chill because it's oh. not your not your chill, carefree with me laugh, but oh, interesting. It's okay. I'm sure everybody has those work ticks. Um, I mean, that's an episode of friends where they have their work laugh. Oh, so really not just you. Okay. Um, okay. So I want to come back a little bit to the panic attack stuff later, but before we do basic question, what is calm? You talked a little, mm-hmm. I think you kind of like danced around this by yeah. talking about anxiety, but for people who haven't read the book, what, what the heck is calm? Calm. It's a Calm. hard word to say. Yeah. It's funny when you type it. Like I, I feel about 10% of the time I, I type cl- clam. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully hopefully people's minds aren't clammed by this book. Uh, so Calm is this fascinating construct, or maybe I should say lack thereof. Because when you look at the actual research that has been conducted on this subject of calm, uh, you know, if you search for calm in, in Google Scholar, for example, you will find an incredible lack of research. Um, there is hardly anything to be found on this subject of calm. Uh, and, you know, there are other kind of tangentially related terms I, I recall uh, looking up alongside calm, like serenity. Uh, but m- many of these have a, a bit of a religious connotation, which wasn't quite what I was going for. I was targeting the anxiety that I faced in my life. Uh, l- luckily, though, there was one study I encountered, not to get too in the weeds, that showed that calm exists on a spectrum with anxiety. And so on one side of the spectrum, let's say the far right, is high anxiety, uh, where our mind is turbulent, we reflect negatively on our thoughts, and our thoughts tend to metastasize and almost uh, have a momentum of their own. And on the other side, as we become less emotionally aroused and reactive and relate to our thoughts in a more positive fashion, we begin to move down this spectrum from high anxiety all the way down to high calm. And that's the fascinating thing about this subject of anxiety is we think the opposite of being anxious is just not being anxious. But when we're not anxious, we actually have further that we can go to invest in that positive state of mind where our thoughts are relatively still, our mind is serene and tranquil, and we experience this profound presence with whatever it is that we're doing in the moment. That's what calm is. It's the opposite of anxiety. Uh, And because it's the opposite of anxiety, uh, we can look at the research that has been conducted on anxiety to further move away from that side of the spectrum and closer to this idea of high calmness. So when you say productivity kind of runs through calm, is it because... It, this whole like calm state, or the, if you achieve this kind of state of calm, what is it about that that allows you to be more productive? Then, well, it, it's the reactivity that is so often associated with working inside of an anxious state uh, that tends to be the problem. It, it's it's a multifaceted thing. So we have the diminished working memory capacity when we're in an anxious state, but when we're in a calm state, we move past this idea of reactivity. And so if an email comes in and 
and you know we we tend to look to that as kind of a hit of novelty throughout the day and other times we go novelty hunting where we kind of look for novel experience we we do this kind of when we lie down on the couch and pull our phone out of our pocket and bounce between a bunch of different applications this leads our mind to be uh it t- tends to be overstimulated um, in a state like that and leads us away from calm as well. But there is this fascinating connection between calm and presence with whatever it is that we're doing. And I think presence is really the key to productivity as it relates to how we do our work these days. If we can be present in whatever it is that we're doing, whatever conversation we're having, whatever we're trying to focus on in the moment, we probably never have to pick up another productivity book again because that presence can lead us to an engagement. Engagement will come quickly. Um, and our mind won't get in the way of what we are intending to accomplish. And so there are countless ways that uh, calmness can help us become more productive. And not to mention anxiety makes us less productive. It's that reactivity. It's that, um, it's that increased uh, capacity for whatever it is that we're doing when we're uh, calm as well. So it's it's a multifaceted kind of phenomenon, uh, but it's fascinating. It's also a little. I mean, what? And I know this personally, but like, yeah. what drew you to this? Because I know you mentioned a little bit about how in the past you had this kind of panic attack, or the, and I, I remember being on the other end of the phone when just after this. When you, I don't remember this at all. I mean, when you were just you'd had a really rough. I think it was a talk that you gave and you it just you had had a really bad reaction or yeah. like response during the talk and, and just felt very anxious and it wasn't a feeling you were very familiar with. No. Especially this kind of like extreme burnout, which I know we've talked about on episode 90, I think. Yeah, well, um, it was interesting leading up to this point too. I had felt nauseous hmm. and kind of dizzy and foggy headed. And I had no idea those were symptoms of anxiety. Uh, I thought anxiety was just kind of shaking in your seat almost. Uh, I really had no idea what anxiety was. I had this restlessness that pervaded everything I did. Uh, that dizziness, that lightheadedness, that nausea um, what was also a symptom of the anxiety too. I remember kind of mislabeling at the time. Hmm. So is this, is this kind of the moment that made you really seek out this idea or what prompted you to get into something that does seem a little like the idea of calm seems a little nebulous. So what, what motivated you to get into it, I guess? Well, I I remember at the time just thinking that whatever this situation is, I I need to find a way to calm my mind. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember feeling and I was meditating for 30 minutes a day at this point. I was doing yoga. We were going to the spa. You know, we, we were doing all these things that, you know, traditional uh, self-help advice or wellness advice uh, basically told me to do. And I wasn't really getting anywhere. And so seeing that, that chasm between the advice out there that wasn't really working for me, that... Uh, I had practiced to an extent and heard so many times that it had basically uh, become a cliche. Um, I thought, okay, this is a situation that I need to get a handle on because I'm supposed to be this productivity guy. Uh, I'm supposed to get up on stage and talk about productivity. And I've realized at the time that that productivity practice didn't really have boundaries. And I think that's such a key is when we don't give productivity boundaries, it can lead to this 
mental uh, state that I've come to think of as an accomplishment mindset, where we're just trying to accomplish things 100% of the time and everything becomes work. Everything becomes stress in order to achieve some greater goals, some greater ambition. This is not to say we shouldn't have goals. I, I actually think productivity advice right now is more essential than it has ever been before because of all we have to manage, because of those notifications that pop in in every direction, because it's so hard to manage our attention. But we need to have boundaries around that practice and we need to develop our uh, intrinsic capacity for accomplishment in the first place. And I think that's exactly where Calm comes in. So it was seeing that kind of dissonance between what I was doing and the advice that I was consuming, as well as really being uncomfortable in my own mind that was anything but calm that motivated me to not write this book. This book wasn't in my mind at the time. The only thing in my mind was getting out of that situation. And then the book came well, well uh, after that fact. Yeah, it's so funny. So the, I'm happy you mentioned the productivity boundaries because it was something I've actually been thinking about my own life in the last few days. It's, so I've read the book, I think, multiple times at this point. You read different versions of, the, of this book too. Yeah, I think I read three different versions yeah. uh, over two different years. This so. was the more <laughs> challenging one to to write Yeah, so for I mean, the reasons we've mentioned. And I think it's become just an amazing final product. But I'm obviously super biased, but I also think it is really good. You are so, very biased. <laughs> But all that to say, I mean, this idea of boundaries, so we're coming out of like kind of Christmas break where I actually took a few days completely off and yeah. I hadn't realized or I hadn't realized that I had basically not taken any time off since before I started the job. And um, so it's like about eight months, six months, yeah, eight months. And I mean, that's just, and now in the last few days, I've been so productive and just like really focused because I had, I think, a little bit more white space, a little more calm, I'd given myself those boundaries around productivity and that allowed me to get way more productive. So I just, yeah. even in my own head, I was like, oh, I really should have been practicing that or been a little bit more mindful of of cultivating that a little bit. So, yeah. I mean, I think that's something that really is currently resonating with me, but something that I know is that a lot of people, like everybody we've talked to who's read this book, seems to really be resonating with this idea of like dopamine and super stimuli. Yeah. But those are, okay, I have said multiple times on this podcast, I'm an economist. Every time people talk about like neurotransmitters, like dopamine or whatever, I just basically can't remember what any of them are. So I mean, okay, <laughs> or, what is- Or sometimes dopamine is mentioned so much that people just, uh, okay, 30 seconds, skip, 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 you know? Yeah, and I mean, yeah. in my head, I'm like, is this is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I can never remember. So- I mean, crash course, what is, what are super stimuli? You have like a whole chapter on this in the book. And I mean, also like dopamine, like how does this all, what are, what are, what's going on in our little brains here? Our little brains. Or Speak big. for yourself, wife. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, so dopamine is a very misunderstood neurotransmitter. And I think anybody who pretends to have this neurotransmitter completely full understanding of it isn't really admitting that the current state of the research doesn't really have a full understanding of how dopamine works and how it drives us in our lives. We need dopamine. Dopamine is essential for the critical functions of our body. We need it on a chemical level. And because we use it across so many different facets of our life, we, we use it to think logically. We use it to think creatively. 
Our body uses it to process and to breathe and basic body functions. But dopamine also has a darker side as well. Uh, or maybe you could say not as light of a side. And that is to do with uh, stimulation and accomplishment. Uh, and so the accomplishment aspect of dopamine is quite fascinating. We, we have this mental mode that we enter into that is called an acquisition mentality, uh, where we're focused on acquiring more of something that we have. And again, this is not a bad thing. A, a lot of people that listen to this podcast are driven, they're motivated, they're, they're focused, you know, they get stuff done. And that's fantastic, especially when what we do is aligned to what we value, which is something that I write a lot about in this book is values and we talk a lot about on the podcast as well. But there is a point at which our desire for more turns into this generalized striving. And a generalized striving is based on top of dopamine. Dopamine provides the neurochemical underpinnings of this constant craving for more. I, I call it the mindset of more in the book. And stimulation is another factor that is at play here too that I think is really, really worth zeroing in on. So novelty is, is the key factor at play. So there are three attributes of something uh, that can lead to a greater dopamine rise. Uh, there's genetics. We all differ. You know, what is uh, dopaminergic for you might not be for me and, and vice versa. Uh, there is direct effect, which is often called salient. So how uh, much something directly influences our life. And there's novelty. And novelty is really the factor that varies uh, in our modern world. Uh, certain things are so incredibly novel, especially online. Uh, you know, personalization algorithms are a really good example of this. Uh, maybe you remember, and I think a lot of us remember actually, this time when our social media feeds went from being chronologically arranged to being algorithmically arranged with the most novel morsels of content at the top. And now to make them even more centered around dopamine, dopaminergic in other words, the, the companies will insert updates from people we don't even follow who they think will will provide us with content that is more novel than the people that we're most familiar with mm -hmm. and to up the familiarity of it because again the salience not to nerd out too much but the salience dimension of dopamine really leans on familiarity in this context and so the more familiar an update is the more we see it as directly affecting our life, the more dopamine it releases, which is why uh, under these updates, you will see that somebody you follow also follows mm. this account that is providing you with dopamine. Uh, but these are what is what, what researchers often call super stimuli, which are these highly processed, exaggerated versions of something that we're biologically programmed to enjoy. And so we naturally crave social connection, which social media takes advantage of by simulating uh, social connection. Again, by putting the most novel updates first so that we become more hooked, it releases more dopamine, it stimulates our mind further, our days are more centered around dopamine, we become more distracted, more anxious, less calm, less productive because we become less deliberate in our actions. Our mind gets hijacked in this way. And so once you begin to identify super stimuli, it's kind of hard to stop. 
You know, social media is a great example of them. Online news is another great example that refreshes every few minutes uh, and not every day like the newspaper used to. Uh, or not every hour like the radio news used to. Everything from, you know, Uber Eats is one that I love to indulge in. <laughs> that's always my problem, super stimuli. But that's one that exists in the analog world where it is, you know, salty, sugary, fatty food that we evolved and were programmed to crave. Uh, but what this does, you know, to sum up this stimulation, this drive towards greater accomplishment is it leads us to become less present. Because, you know, here's the thing. Those networks, the, the brain networks that support us in being present with whatever it is that we're doing are actually reversely correlated with these networks that support us when we're stimulated or striving for more accomplishment. And so, quite ironically, the more we crave more and the more stimulated our mind becomes, the less present and productive we become. But by understanding and dissecting the research, we can really zero in on uh, what we can do about it. You mentioned briefly like Uber Eats as part of the analog world. Yeah. And I know this is something you dig into in the book. I mean, how, why is that even relevant, I guess? Yeah. Well, this is the fascinating thing is we spend far, far more time in the digital world than we realize. And this started happening during the, the COVID pandemic where our digital screen time went up to over 13 hours every day. And it hasn't really come down since. Mm -hmm. And the digital world, if you kind of pay attention to it, is far more novel than our analog world. But yet our analog world makes us far, far happier and more satisfied with whatever it is that we're doing. If you think back to the most meaningful moments of your life, maybe the odd outlier is digital. But most of the most meaningful moments are time with people. It's friendship, it's experiences, it's traveling, it's vacations, it's meeting people, it's analog. Mm -hmm. And so I think that dividing line between the digital and the analog worlds, especially when so much of our digital world that we tend to, when we're not acting with intentionality, uh, so intentionality is at play there too, where so often the in, it's in the digital world that our intentions slip away from our grasp, uh, where in the physical world, and unless you know we walk into an odd room in our house and forgot what we came in there for, we usually hold on to our intentions. But one heuristic that I've started to follow after going through with this journey is when it comes to efficiency. When I need to do something efficiently, that is what the digital world is for. Because the digital world can streamline our life. If you need to communicate with something from or somebody from around the world, you can send an email, you can send a, a, an iMessage or you a text. You can run a regression you way can, faster on, on a computer. Yeah, yeah, than doing <laughs> one by hand. It, so the, the digital world is for efficiency and the analog world is for meaning. And one exception to this is if you're able to use technology intentionally. But when we have so many personalization algorithms that drive our behavior online more than we do ourselves when we're online, uh, that's often not the case. Cool. So I'm looking at the time. Yeah. I guess one thing, what would you recommend be the first thing people try if they are trying to cultivate more calm in their life? One thing that I think is key 
to keep in the front of your mind on this journey to calm and, you know, away from anxiety and burnout and towards productivity is how much chronic stress, especially hidden chronic stress you tend to throughout the day. You know, calm is like productivity where when you zoom out, you realize that pretty much everything influences how calm we are, uh, as well as how productive we are, how intentional we are. And we need to zoom out and look at all the things that influence it. But chronic stress is a great, great place to start. So there's two types of... here: Cole's Notes or Cliff's Notes version, depending if you're in Canada or the US, if you're international. I, I don't know. They have Cliff's Notes international. No uh, but essentially, there's two types of stress, acute stress and chronic stress. Acute is great. It's the once-off stress that actually produces a lot of meaning in our life. Uh, If you went back through your life and eliminated all the acute sources of stress, the temporary once-off things, you would eliminate most of the meaning from your life as well. The weddings, the funerals that forced you to grow, uh, the uh, challenges that you faced in your relationships that also turned you into the person that you are today. But chronic stress is is just garbage. It's it's the no good, very bad kind of stress that we face repeatedly, chronically, in other words. So instead of the once-off argument that we have with our spouse, it's the never-ending argument that we can't seem to get out of that we are reminded of whenever we see them. Uh, instead of the... the tra- oh, you had a sentence. Not us. <laughs> um, I was like, do we have that no, argument? No, <laughs> no. Um, you know, instead of the, the traffic jam on your way to the airport where you're late for a flight, it's the constant, just never-ending uh, rush hour traffic you face mm-hmm. to work and from work. And chronic stress is dangerous because it leads us to anxiety. Right when, especially when that chronic stress is threatening, uh, anxiety is a response to a situation that our ancient mind perceives as being threatening, and so it's it's this normal response. But this chronic stress also leads us to burnout, and as defined by Christina Maslach, um, who's probably the world's foremost burnout researcher, chronic stress is the only thing that causes burnout. Burnout is when we face too much chronic stress that we're not able to really mobilize and deal with it. And so that's something to keep in mind too, is that burnout uh, idea. If you're feeling some combination of exhausted, uh, cynical, and unproductive, those are the three characteristics of burnout, uh, it's worth looking at how much chronic stress you face. And when you zero in on the chronic stress, a lot of it's obvious, right? Like if every time you look at your bank account, you don't have enough money. That is a source of chronic stress. If if you worry about a recession or if your job is at risk, these are legitimate, very obvious sources of chronic stress. But so much of the chronic stress we face in our life is also hidden and is a source of stress that has become familiar and comfortable. And to go back to the super stimuli, a lot of sources of super stimuli are also sources of chronic stress. You know, reading the news one more time, it's familiar, it's comfortable, but it's also stressful and can lead us closer to burnout, given burnout is when enough chronic stress accumulates. Uh, Social media, you know, pay attention to how you feel on social media. It may make you more stressed than you think. And so minding the sources of hidden stress that you choose to pay attention to that can lead to burnout 
anxiety and away from calm and productivity is. Uh, I think a great place to start, but there are there are dozens and upon dozens of of things we can do to cultivate a calmer mind. And you can find them all in your book, How to Calm Your Mind. I was actually <laughs> going to wrap up the interview with a big question of oh. how do you calm your mind? But I'm going to just leave that for the listener <laughs> and say, if you want to know how to do that, go read the book. It's fantastic. And I would say that even if I wasn't married to the author. Oh. <laughs> and, yeah. and one other thing to mention, just in case people don't pick up the book, ah. is, is savoring. Uh, so savoring is one of the the most fascinating subjects I encountered in this research journey. And again, there's dozens of them. Uh, but uh, but savoring is the the name for the research field where we convert positive experiences in our life into positive emotions. And the fascinating thing is just because we experience something positive does not mean that we will derive any satisfaction or happiness from it whatsoever. We need to actively savor something and enjoy it and pay attention to it and ruminate on on the positive aspects of an experience. And there are countless ways that we can do this. We can do this by marveling at something, luxuriating in an experience. We can do this by anticipating an experience, like counting down the days to it. We can do this. Uh, we we can do this by uh, reminiscing on a past experience that we've had, and it counts as savoring because we do this in the present. And we can also express gratitude for the uh, incredible elements of our life. Uh, the people, the, uh, the animals like Eleanor, uh, the, <laughs> the different things, things that we have in our life as well, the situations that we're in. These are all ways that we can savor our life. And when it comes to that, th- that idea of the opposing networks in our mind, that presence network versus that stimulation and acquisition network, savoring actually leads us to spend more time in the here and now and develop that not only capacity for, but skill of being present with whatever it is that we're doing and more importantly, whomever it is that we're with. And that's, that. it's such a simple way of becoming more satisfied with our life and enjoying our life more. So making a savor list of the things that you love to savor, uh, incredible strategy for living better and becoming calmer. Yeah. And maybe this year, one of the things on your savor list can be the savoring section of that book. Oh, yes. (laughs) Sorry. I can toot your horn. So, (laughs) Uh, well, you got a bonus little tip in there, everybody. (laughs) So with that, I think it's time to wrap up. How do we wrap the show up usually? Isn't it in the show? I haven't looked at the show notes. <laughs> it's been like an episode off for me. This is great. The out- outro is, uh, Where is the not outro? in here. Oh, I-, I usually just make it up. It's never the same, I don't think. Oh, yeah. It's, oh, right. You have to go to timeandattention.fm. And make sure to complain about how much uh, that domain name costs. No, that's your no. old man Poco rant. Okay. Um, or Christopher, if uh, how the rest of the world knows you. Old man Christopher. Chris rant. is how they know me. <laughs> right. Not even Christopher. <laughs> oh, the two names that nobody else calls you. Christopher. Just me. Yeah. Um, so with that, make sure you check out timeandattention.fm. Apparently that's where all the podcast stuff can be found. You can also find the book on Chris's website, chrisbailey.com, or anywhere books are sold. We went to a whole bunch in our hometown. That was so Checked fun. Checked out the book on all sorts of bookstores and 
all the places got very excited because you signed a whole bunch of them. So if you're in Ottawa, there might be a couple copies signed left. Um, yeah, which which locations did we hit up? Oh, yeah. So we went to Kanata, which is out in the West End. Indigo Kanata, Indigo Pinecrest. And Indigo Barhaven. And then we also went to the one at Rideau Center. And, uh, and perfect perfect books on Elgin Street. Yes. I'm going to sign those too. Which is a t- it's a, our little local bookstore, yeah. which is awesome. So, That's fantastic. Um, if you live in the West End of Ottawa, there are lots of books out there. So. And if you don't live in Ottawa, you can pick it up anywhere else. Most all bookstores seem to be carrying it right now. Love so, it. Yeah. With that, hope you have a great week. And we'll see you in a couple Tuesdays. Bye, everybody.